Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Welcome today, friends. We're here uh, having another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast today, and I'm excited to have a guy who is getting a lot of kingdom work done by living his life and has, on on some level, had a uh, deeper dive into my life, investing in me without really trying to. So today we have Chuck Lawless, and I'm not going to do some big introduction of all the things he does, and I'll let him share a little bit about that. But we did meet about 10 or 11 years ago in his office when he was at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I spent a couple days down there doing some different things with a friend of mine. And uh, we were talking about getting the ministry I do today, the gathering of the Miami Valley, maybe expanding, growing, doing different things. And uh, here we are almost a you know, decade plus later, and Chuck has joined us on a podcast today. So Chuck, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be with you. Is that something you hear real quick, just to jump in? When I reference you having a level of mentoring me, I'm sure there's a a natural, all shucks, what have I really done type of reaction. And yet that's the world we live in today. So how do you, I can't be the only person that says something like that to you. So how do you respond when someone talks about you mentoring them and you know them very little? Yeah, you know, most of the time that comes through my writings, through my books, or through uh, my blog posts in particular. And I and I tell you what it does for me. I write a blog post five days a week. Uh, I've done that since 2013. And and honestly, Jeff, there are, there are days when I think, why do I keep doing this? It can be time consuming, though I've I've been I've been able to narrow the amount of time it takes to write a blog post. Uh, But it does take some energy. It takes some continual thinking. And occasionally I think that, you know, I could spend my time in a better way. But then out of nowhere, somebody will shoot me an email or or a text or call me and say, I just want you to know that that what you wrote this day was incredibly helpful to me. I I thank the Lord for for that word. And it's and it's just enough to convince me to say, all right, I need I need to keep writing this. This is a way of of trying to influence other people's lives without me having to leave my house to do it, uh, to leave my my wife behind while I'm traveling to do it, and do it in such a way that that uh, I'm not on a platform trying to get glory. I'm I'm sitting behind my desk, and sometimes people know me only only from the from the blog posts, and I'm I'm cool with that. How often do you get those type of like? I, I probably share, I'm guessing at minimum one of your blogs a week on my stuff. And I've, you know, I've got uh, heading towards, I've got 4,800 plus people on there I'm connected to. And I'm sure that would apply to other people or whatever. I mean, how often do you hear from someone that your writing has impacted them or a, a quote you used or a thought or, you know, like today you had one about seven ways to know kind of your ego's getting out of check. And I've already shared that. I mean, I love your ones that are kind of quizzy, self-reflective, ask yourself questions. So how often do you hear about that? Yeah, it's probably, it probably averages once a week or so. There are some weeks where 
I don't hear from anybody, but other weeks I'll hear from somebody every day or every other day. Mm -hmm. uh, probably on average, it's, it's once a week. Well, talk to us about, I always like to find out, you know, kind of a three-minute coming to Christ, you know, what, what that was like and you coming to Christ, you know, the moment when you did come to him and why did you finally say, all right, Jesus is Lord and Savior. This is why I'm jumping in wanting to follow him with my life. Yeah, I became a believer when I was age 13. I grew up in Ohio, just north of Cincinnati, uh, to non-Christian parents. I heard the gospel for the first time with a seventh grade classmate, a 12-year-old, uh, who was, uh, I, I uh, categorized him as an out-of-control, obnoxious, rude, tactless, 12-year-old Pentecostal preacher, because he was, he was every one of those things. And in my face, every day with the gospel, that was a brand new story to me, uh, and he would not let up on me. He was he was so in my face that I would skip school some days. Wow. I I tell my mom I'm sick because I don't I don't want to go hear from him. But I look back now and realize that because I knew none of the gospel, I had no background in that. Uh, I needed somebody who kept on me, and the Lord put the right person in my life. And I actually went to church for the first time. Uh, with with a Southern Baptist neighbor, I went to that church because I wanted to say to my friend, I went to church, so get off my back. <laughs> and what I, what I didn't know was that that day in August of 1974, the Lord was going to call me to himself. And my, my pastor, I didn't even know his title then, the guy who was doing whatever he was doing up there, told the same story that my friend had been telling me. And I just had a real sense that when when he said, if you want to follow Jesus, come and talk to me, that I needed to do that. And God made me his child that day. And I'm convinced he called me to preach that day. Mm. And it was, a, it was a pretty phenomenal day in my life. If I continue the story, though, it was years later before anybody really invested in me to help me grow in Christ. And so as a, as a teenage guy in a non-Christian home, no real mentoring relationships, my my first years as a believer were tough. It's one of the reasons why I so strongly believe in discipleship mentoring today. Uh, we we cannot afford to leave baby believers fighting the battles on their on their own. So it was a, a seventh grade classmate that the Lord used to draw me to Himself. And north of Cincinnati is where again exactly since we're in Ohio. I grew up in Mason. Yeah. So you were hanging out at Kings Island maybe back then, right? You know, I remember when Kings Island opened, and it was uh, it was pretty amazing. Of course, you lived that close. Uh, the first year we went a lot. After that, it, it declined. When you're when you're living under the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, uh, we didn't we didn't go as often. But but yeah, it was pretty special when it first opened. You know, it's funny. My 18 year old, who's graduating from high school soon, he uh, spoke recently, and he shared. He got he's gotten a ch chance to preach three times and he referenced he asked the students a question he said what is something as a kid you didn't like so much that now you do and what's something as a kid you liked a lot that now you don't and for him he talked about how he used to love roller coasters and and uh, now he doesn't and my wife and i were there we heard him say it she loves roller coasters i don't and i'm high-fiving myself like he's come around to the dark side i'm so grateful wow. my in-laws all grew up around cedar point so they think I'm a goofball for a number of reasons. One of them is because I don't like any of that. My daughter doesn't. And now my oldest son has come over. So when I drive south on 71 and I get off by that exit, 
I'm always thinking, I wish the tennis tournament was going on because I'm a huge tennis fan and I would take that every day of the week over Kings Island. So, um, yeah, if I was, if I grew up where you did, I'd be thinking when's, when's the ATP coming in, in August or whatever. So, you know, that's funny because I, I love roller coasters and I have never been to Cedar Point. It's on my bucket list that oh, before wow. I'm too old to get it on and off the roller coaster, uh, that's my, and the multiple roller coasters, I, I plan uh, to be there. I'll introduce you to my in-laws. They will be more than glad, I'm sure, to treat you. So, That's cool. so, so Chuck, talk about um, what you're doing at this stage of life. You're obviously involved in education. Uh, you work with Church Answers. Um, you speak. You, you're doing a number of things. So t- share, share with our listeners, what what does this stage of life look like for you? April 1 was my 40th anniversary in full-time ministry, and I, I look and see all the Lord has allowed me to do. I pastored for 14 years in Ohio. I've now been a seminary professor for 25 years, my 25th year teaching. I serve at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I serve as Dean of Doctoral Studies and Vice President for Spiritual Formation. So I get to help lead our advanced degree programs and more particularly help lead our institution, our our faculty, our family, our students to be uh, praying people who, who walk with the Lord. And then in addition to that, I serve with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I work with a team that works with theological education around the world, and we help serve as liaisons between the needs of the world and our Southern Baptist seminaries and pastors that might want to help train overseas. I do serve with Church Answers with Tom Rayner, uh, helping with some of their consulting and some of their coaching. And then right now, I'm also in interim pastor at a church here in in Wake Forest. So my plate is pretty full. Uh, actually, it's really full. But what I what I love about what I get to do is there's, there's nothing I get to do that I don't want to do. And all of the folks to whom I report give me some freedom to do the other things because they, they understand that when I when I get to do what I love to do, I'm I'm likely going to be more committed and better at whatever I do because I just enjoy it. So I'm really grateful for my leaders at every institution that, that let me uh, expand my wings a little bit and do some different things. That's incredible. I, I, I love when people, and obviously you have to tend to be a little older. I'm 51 and maybe I'm not quite there, but I love you know, guys at your age. And even if you're younger, where people can say, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And the people around me allow that to happen. So being at education is a big chunk of what you do. Let me ask you, I mean, pre-COVID, there's obviously been great concern. You know, I've been blessed to serve, not unpaid in a church for quite a while, very connected to my church, have led two ministries. And I think just in general, I think there's been a growing concern pre-COVID towards education and particularly Christian education, especially at higher ed level. And then COVID hits. Um, I know over the last several years, um, you know, we've seen a number of Christian colleges and universities close. You know, uh, a place that would be close to me location-wise, you grew up near there, Cincinnati Christian University closed. What are your thoughts on a future Christian education in general, rising costs, demand, challenges, COVID, and then also where is the church in that? Because I've had conversations, at least around here with people I know about, you know, at some point the church is going to need to pick up some slack because... You know, whatever the number of Christian schools are now compared to what they were five years ago, compared to what they're going to be five years from now, those numbers are probably going down. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue otherwise. So speak about Christian education, the need, the challenges in these times. 
Yeah, particularly at the level where, where I teach, at the graduate level and the doctoral level, I, I think there will always be that, that need for advanced studies to be best equipped to do God's work. I don't think that's for everybody, but I do argue that when we have access to further training, opportunity to get the further training, and ability to do further training, when so much of the world, believers would give much of what they have to have 30 minutes of real training, we who have immediate access to it at least have to pray about Lord, should I be getting more training? Uh, so I think the need's always going to be there. It is increasingly tougher. The costs are increasing. Uh, when I went to seminary in the 80s, I paid $500 a semester for, for all of my courses. That Those days are long gone. Long we, gone. We have students coming to us that uh, are coming with tens of thousands of dollars of undergraduate debt that just straps them. They're often working three and four jobs to, to pay their bills. It's tougher for them to stay on top of everything. So these are, these are difficult days. And COVID did expose some of our financial weaknesses, uh, institutions that were already in decline and that, that could, not, could not survive that. I do think the future will be probably smaller faculties, uh, likely more faculty who are adjunct faculty uh, who have the qualifications to teach, but they're also doing full-time ministry somewhere. And I think I think that's going to be the wave of the future. I think as we prepare doctoral students, I tell them, if you're not willing to teach adjunctively, if you're not willing to teach online, you're not likely to have many opportunities for employment uh, in higher Christian education in the, in the days to come. So these are not easy days, but we still have a role and God continues to bless our efforts particularly here at Southeastern. That's great to hear. I was going to ask you more about that, but yeah, it's good to hear Southeastern's doing well in light of that. You know, Cedarville, which is close to us, and I think you spent some time there. Uh, Cedarville, I know, has really flourished and done well in light of everything going on. Let me ask you this. So, Chuck, you wear multiple hats. So if you look at education, you look at church world, you look at pure relationship world. So just take off those hats and just think about you as a mentor, which we'll talk more about, friend, whatever, what has been the most difficult road to navigate with, with COVID for you of those arenas? Sure. Sure. Educationally for us at, at Southeastern, we had already moved many of our courses and several of our degrees to make them fully available online prior to COVID. So when we had to pretty much overnight pivot last spring and turn everything into online to finish the semester, we were much closer to that already. So, so that was not really difficult for us. We did have to learn to uh, be excited about that for those who hadn't done a whole lot of online teaching. So that's, that's not really been that, that difficult. Mentoring, I've had to learn how to do more via Zoom. But, but that's, that was the reality for me prior to COVID because I, I invest in young men on this campus whose goal is to leave me. They, they don't want to be here forever. Well, I don't want them here forever. Mm. But I still want to be in their life. And so when they're, when they're serving around the world or someplace else in North America, the best way for us to connect is via the phone or Zoom or FaceTime. And so you just, you just learn how to do that. I, I do think when I, when I became an interim pastor, it was mid-COVID. And it didn't take me long in that role to say, wow, this, 
this is really different at the at the local church level with mm-hmm. trying to figure out mask required not required uh what what regulations do we follow what do we not follow uh, how do we avoid letting everything become political uh, what do we do with the folks who are fringe folks that may never come back uh, what do we do if our if our giving is is significantly down which was a fear for many of us early on and so i think it just i think it just added weightiness to what we're doing not because it changed the way we do the gospel but but it forced us to be creative and it forced us to think about new ways to approach things and we didn't have a lot of time to to consider the best way to do the things we had to we had to make some decisions on the fly and and lean on other people lean on our creative people in our churches lean on our tech savvy people in our churches and that's that's not all bad i think that's one of the positives of covid actually wow yeah there's a lot of challenges in all that you know let's let's focus on mentoring a bit because i know it's something you wrote a book about it it's something that you speak to quite often in your blog you reference discipleship and in one sense those two things are very different and in another sense they overlap i really like um, definition I've heard that I really like about discipleship is it's if you're a discipler and I like the word R at the letter R at the end, you're a follower, you're a learner, and you're a reproducer. That's important to you. Mentoring. How do you go about it? What does that look like as far as a timeline, a process, discerning it, and how do you know who to say yes to and how do you know who to say no to? Yeah, great, great questions. L- let me let me back up and preface this answer going back to education and the and the local church. And I and I do that because I I get to mentor primarily out of my classroom setting. As a local church interim pastor, I have some opportunities to do that, but uh, my primary field would be my students. And I I love that that privilege. It was Robert Coleman, the author of the Master Plan of Evangelism, who 20 plus years ago set me down at a dinner and said, you need to spend the rest of your life investing in young men if you want your ministry to, to, to flourish. And he challenged me to do what he's done now for decades, and, and that, that changed my life. Amen. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. But I also think that functions best when it's happening, yes, on our campus, but we do that in partnership with the local church, mm. with, with pastors and church leaders who help invest in young people, too. Because the, the church is the, is the center of what we do in doing the Great Commission. The best seminaries, the best Christian institutions will intentionally stay connected to the local churches that help make it possible to do what we do. And so I, I want to see both happening, happening in the local church, happening in our classrooms. And together, we, we cooperate and help our, our students grow. How do I determine guys to invest in? I made a deliberate decision years ago to say, I want to start by praying. And that's not because I'm, I'm super spiritual. It's, it's because I read Luke 6, where Jesus prayed all mm. night long before he called out the 12. And I, and I want to pray about that just in case God wants to direct me to somebody that wasn't on my radar screen. I, I do think there's wisdom in looking for people who seem to be teachable, who are available, uh, who who are humble, who are hungry to grow. Uh, they give evidence of faithfulness. I do think all of that matters. But 
I also want us praying just in case God sees something in somebody that we don't see yet. Because some of us in ministry are doing ministry today because somebody else saw in us what nobody else saw. So, so I pray. And then, and then I approach every person, and this is my missiological heart, I approach every person as an unreached people group, mm. meaning that if I go overseas to engage an unreached people group, I want to learn their culture, their history, their language, their relationships. I want to learn everything about them, their history, in order to best know how to reach them. Well, if I'm going to invest in you, Jeff, if I don't know you well, if I don't learn about you, if I don't ask you a lot of questions, I might wind up answering questions you're not asking, mm. and I might reduce you to a project, and I'm just applying my strategy to you or to any other brother, regardless of what your situation is. And, and I think mentoring has to be more personalized than that. It's, it makes it harder. It makes it much more complicated. But I think we mentor people. We don't mentor projects. Mm. And we've got to get to know the people to do that. You set a timeline on that. I mean, how do you determine how far? I mean, especially since you're dealing with students, obviously you're probably not going beyond, you know, realistically even meeting them and then where that goes a couple of years. But I mean, how do you figure out, discern a timetable there? Yeah, I have the plus of we have semester breaks. So they're just built in for me. At the end of each semester, we stop and ask, is this working? If it's not working, how can we improve it? Do we both agree that this should continue? Or one of us, we're just not sure, but the natural break gives us permission to, to step away. Mm -hmm. So that's really helpful to me. It's uncommon that I would invest in a student for his entire three or four years here, because what often happens is they come and early on they want to be invested in. But as they learn and they grow and they invest in others, uh, they, they grow beyond that, which is exactly what you want to happen. So generally for me, I'm probably most invested in in guys for a semester or two, uh, and then we, we move forward. There are other guys that I invested in for a number of years at Southern, two of whom are on my team for the IMB. And so wow. to this day, I get to invest in them. And that's, that's pretty cool too. And do you kind of follow Robert Coleman's lead as far as what you speak into their lives and say, hey, do this for the rest of your life with the younger guys? Or what's, what do you I kind do. of speak I for the longer haul for them? I want them to know from the beginning that they need to be investing in somebody else because I, I don't want them waiting to do that because if they wait to do that, it's hard to jumpstart that. Mm. I, I actually, I teach our personal discipleship class here at Southeastern. And a couple of years ago, I added an assignment, which I should have added a long time ago. I'm just not smart enough to think about it before a couple of years ago. Uh, I added an assignment that whatever we teach that week, students are required to take 15 minutes during that week and teach somebody else exactly what they've learned. And 15 minutes isn't long, but it's a way to say, I don't want you in this classroom to just take in information. I want you to learn, but I want you to take it to somebody else. So much so that I'm going to require you to do that. And one of the questions on your weekly quiz is, with whom did you meet? What did you talk about? What worked and what didn't work? So that they're immediately at least aware that they have to reproduce themselves. Do you find students are pretty tried and true to respond to that? Yeah, they are. What I'm not clear about yet is, are they doing that because they're going to lose a bunch of points off their quiz? Sure. Or is that going to become lifestyle? I have them for one semester. So my goal is to at least move them in that direction. 
I tell them all the time, the best way I can test what you learn in this class is not what you do with this semester. It's what you're doing 10 years from now. Sure. Um, I, I will tell you that the generation I've taught now, uh, the generations for the past 20 plus years, they long to be mentored. Uh, they long to do ministry alongside others. Hmm. They're not real interested in being lone rangers. Uh, and so that. so I, I have the benefit of working with a generation that that uh, is looking for someone to invest in them. Mm. Well, knowing you're a Bengals fan and you've, you've had to suffer for a while, you, you personally just had your own Super Bowl type trophy moment and uh, you've written about it and gotten a great response. It looks like your mom just came to Christ. Talk a little bit about that and the joy therein and follow up and response and so on and so forth. Prayers of, I think four plus decades. Yep, no, that's right. And let me let me tie together the Bengals and my mom. My mom is a huge NFL fan. In fact, one of the first times my wife ever saw my mom, my mom was at a Bengals game, and they, the camera spanned the audience, and my mom was sitting there with her Bengal stripes painted across her face. And I told my <laughs> wife, Pam, I said, Pam, that's my mom. Pam, that's <laughs> I said, I promise you, that's my mom. And you so, proposed right after that, right? Yeah, and I, well, I think we were, no, we were dating. That's right. That's right. So I had, I had a lot of explaining to do. Let me, let me put it that way. In fact, before my mom became a believer, last Christmas, we gave her a Tony Dungy devotional. Mm. And I knew she would read it because it was written by a former football coach. And we prayed for my mom for 47 years. Prior to that, we prayed for my dad for uh, 36 years before he became a believer at age 71. But we've been praying for my mom almost almost five decades. And out of nowhere, a couple of months ago, she'd heard the gospel, uh, but she wasn't in church with us. She wasn't with me. She wasn't with my brother, who's a, a pastor, church planter there in Ohio. She just felt overwhelmed by the Lord and came to the place to say, I just need to give him my life. And, and there are so many ways, Jeff. If, if I were writing the script to say, here's what I hope you see in my mom, I could not have put in writing what we've seen. Wow. Uh, she Just since she, she came to Christ, you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. She, she told me, my dad unexpectedly passed away nine years ago now, and I wasn't there. I was in Richmond, Virginia, when he passed away. And my mom has told me since then that she saw a piece in my dad when he died that she had never seen before. Mm. She said, I never forgot that because he was, he was a believer. His last three years of his life, he just trusted the Lord. and The Lord dramatically changed him. Well, my mom, when she became a believer, said to me, she said, Chuck, you know, I've talked to you about the peace that I saw in your dad. She said, and, and I wish I had come up with this because it makes good preaching. She said, now I can look in the mirror mm. And I see that same piece in, in my face. Wow. And that's, that's pretty powerful to me. Uh, when, I, when I baptized her, she had a smile on her face that, that I had never seen in her. And it was so obvious that her life had been transformed. I, I wrote about it on my blog post. It's been fascinating, Jeff. That, that picture was phenomenal, by the way, of her and you and your brother. Yeah, I have it actually right here in my office. I have a, the, the same picture. I look at it and just and just weep. Well, folks, folks saw that. I've had pastors 
uh, send me a tweet saying, I want you to know I shared that picture with my church. Uh, may I use that story as an illustration? So I told my mom, just in her coming to know Christ, her story has, has gone global in some ways with our missionaries and with other pastors, and the Lord's already using her. It's just amazing. So what does that do? I mean, you're, you're a mature man of God. You're a mature reproducer of the gospel. What does that do right now at this point in your life, Chuck, for your soul? What, what is the soul care that's taking place in you based on what you're seeing with your mom? It's a, it's a reminder. I, I can theologically talk about it's God who has to change the heart. And, and I agree with that. I think that's what the scriptures teach. But what I've seen in my mom is God just did that. We didn't convince her. Uh, we shared the gospel with her. We weren't in her face with the gospel like my buddy was in, in seventh grade. The Lord just grabbed her. And that's a good reminder for me. If, if my job is to equip people to do ministry, I still have to come back to the point that anything we do that's worth anything is because God does it. The, the other thing it's done is all the other guys in my life, the other people in my life that I'm praying for, not only have I cranked up the praying, but I just believe mm. a lot uh, more forcefully. I, I told a guy a couple of weeks ago, I prayed for my mom for 47 years, and the Lord changed her. I'm telling you, dude, I'm, I'm going to pray until the Lord draws you into, into his kingdom. And I did tell him, I hope... I hope you do it before you're 79, because I'll be long dead by that point. But wow. it's just an encouragement. Do not give up. And what, I, what I've learned is that when God finally answers a long-term prayer, you don't care about the delay anymore. Mm. I think you, when, you blogged about that, if I remember correctly. I, I did. And it's just, we get frustrated with the delay while the delay is going on. But when God comes through and he works a miracle, you don't care how long it took him to get there. You're just grateful that he did. Mm. Wow. That is so incredible. I mean, I, yeah, I can't tell you enough your energy and enthusiasm in that. Uh, I wish I could say it has tweaked me to the point that I'm really getting after on a whole nother level prayer wise. I'm looking at the picture right now, but yeah, I see it. it's definitely tweaked me. To, to a good extent. So I just need more of that good. leaning, both for family, you know, in-laws, friends, whatever. That has been a great thing. So we're going to shift for a moment. We're going to take this to a period. I like to get a little silly and do these five rapid five questions. So Chuck, what was your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Uh, probably. And I don't know that they were called Twizzlers back then, but, but oh, yeah. strawberry licorice. Wow. In fact, I had some yesterday. So it's not just my, not just my favorite childhood snack. I still will eat Twizzlers. You know what's funny? My belly uh, is not shy about eating and liking many things. Twizzlers and licorice has never been one for me. That's that's amazing. Um, yeah, I don't. I I can't understand that. I don't eat black licorice. I think that's disgusting. But, <laughs> but strawberry licorice—that's good stuff. So here's a great one. What is your favorite biography, leadership book, spiritual formation book, historical book, whatever you most like to gift? Gift being the key one to other people. Yeah, leadership would probably be Oswald Sanders' spiritual leadership. I think it's just a, great a, one. It's just a classic. Um, spiritual disciplines, uh, Don Whitney's book, mm. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, is just, I, I think, the best one out there still. Also, encourage folks to read a book by Michael Card, uh, the, the Christian musician called The Walk. Mm. And it's the story of his religion professor, his New Testament professor at Western Kentucky University, 
who invested in his life. And it's the story of what a mentoring relationship can accomplish. And I, I read, it's just a little book, real small, a lot of white edges. It doesn't take long to read it. I read it two or three times a year. I, I can quote much of it by heart because it's a reminder that we invest our lives in others that they might invest in others. And the gospel witness goes on. So, and this is the one called the life changing journey of two friends, right? Yeah, that's it. That's the, uh, wow. that's the subtitle. The walk is the, it's out of print now, but you can get used copies for inexpensive cost. I'm also right now reading a book on the uh, big red machine, the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, wow. that's... Uh, I'm not far enough into it yet to decide if I like it, but wow. uh, that's my upbringing. Okay. Yeah. That's back when I used to like them. I'm trying to get, getting to liking the Reds again. My son and I went with a couple of friends and saw them play the Indians uh, a few weeks ago. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of looking at, because uh, I can make a little money off of it too, getting season tickets since they're doing 30% right now and going to a few games and selling some others online. But uh, you know what I love about this? I don't know if this is the every version of this Michael Card book, but this image, and they're really small, these two people walking, looks like the Abbey of Gethsemane almost to me, which I'm a huge fan of that in your old neck of the woods near Bardstown, Kentucky. But uh, yeah. anyway, that looks like almost it could be the Abbey of Gethsemane in some weird way. So I'm going to check that book out. So what yeah, a- the, uh, the title comes from Bill Lane, who was the new Testament prof. Dr. Lane always invested in young men, not unlike Robert Coleman. Uh, and some, sometimes he would just walk around the campus with them. That was mm. often his, his motif. Often they talked about life. Sometimes they just walked and it was just the, the ministry of presence. And so I will, when the weather's decent, and it's most often decent here in North Carolina, uh, I'll grab a student and so let's just walk around the campus and, and talk a little bit. You can, you can accomplish a lot with a walking conversation. You can accomplish a lot just by walking with somebody and knowing you're not by yourself. You know, it's funny in the last 15 months, I would think that's the number one tweak I've made to my ministry. I joke and I say, you know, I mean, that either says we're really old or something else. But, uh, you know, I think that's something that uh, I've been doing a lot more lately because I don't exercise as much as I should. I'm jealous because I know you do. And when I saw that image of you a minute ago, I'm like, yeah, Chuck's working out and staying healthy. But, yeah, walk and breathe a lot of ministry naturally into it. So next question. So let's say you and your wife are taking the youth group of your church that you're the interim pastor for on a long trip. It's lunchtime. You weren't prepared. You weren't sure where to stop. The exit sign shows McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and we're going West Coast, In-N-Out Burger. Where do you stop? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's Chick-fil-A for a sandwich. I love their, their chicken sandwiches. It's McDonald's for their ice cream cone. Wow. I, and I'm a big fan of ice cream. My favorite is United Dairy Farmers based oh, wow. in Cincinnati. Yeah. Not graters, not graters, not graters. Oh, wow. I, I don't know why others love graters and Cincinnati is probably better known for graters, but sure. UDF is, is my favorite by far, but I do like the simple vanilla ice cream cone at, mm-hmm. at McDonald's. It's wow. not a whole lot of calories. It tastes good. So yeah, I'll go to Chick-fil-A and then drive to the next McDonald's and get dessert. So let's test your knowledge. The, uh, one of the, the greater boys went to Wittenberg in my neck of the woods and obviously from Cincinnati, do you know what that greater boy's name was? I do not. It has to do with ice cream. It's Chip Grater. Is it really? And of course, they're known for their chips. So I go figure. They, they, they are. That's true. I yeah, didn't know that. The greater family name. I'm I'm here to educate you a little bit. I got nothing else to hey. offer you, Chuck. 
But what I can, can I say? I've already learned much here. Yeah, I can educate you about graders. Okay, so what's a movie when you stumble across it? If you're flipping channels or you're streaming and something pops up, you're like, I got to stay with this. And it pulls you in every time. What's that movie or documentary or whatever? You know, I, I suspect many of your listeners have never heard of this. It's probably Brian's song. Oh, wow. Brian Piccolo. That was uh, Billy D. Williams? It, it was Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. Yeah. And it was the story of their friendship developing as they were teammates on the uh, Chicago Bears. Yeah. Piccolo developed cancer. And it's the story of that relationship and, and Brian's death. And I don't know, I may have been, goodness, I was probably in third grade, fourth grade. I remember watching that movie and I started crying oh, so wow. much over his coming death that my grandma told me to go in the bathroom and stay there until I stopped crying. Wow. Uh, so to this day, I uh, think about that, that movie and it's, it's seldom do I ever see it on anymore. That's James Cagney but, too, right? Uh, I think, I think it was, I think, I think you're right. Up. Yeah. Uh, well, I've never seen it. Now, you know, what's funny is you mentioned this book, the walk and you're telling that is your movie. You have to be a Tuesdays with Maury fan, right? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> Don't Sorry, Mitch reading. Album. I don't think Mitch Album's going to listen to this anyway, so yeah, we're yeah, probably okay so. there. But uh, okay, I always love those kind of questions. So lastly, I always have to ask, who was your first celebrity crush? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Let, let me answer it this way, because they're, because they're not celebrities, not, not per se, but I, I grew up watching big-time wrestling with my, my Church of God grandma, on Saturdays and watching roller derby every Saturday afternoon to this over here on my bookshelf is a card of a roller derby star, Joan Weston, that uh, she became as, as well as some of the guys on the guys side of the team. Uh, that, that became my goal in life one day was to be a, a roller derby star. I never got there, not even close. But uh, I still remember their names. I still will sometimes go back and watch it online now. The old, the old roller derby. Now you are just, you are just proving to me why this is such a good thing that I ask these questions. Because if you would have given me till now, till however long I'm going to live to guess what you would say in a million years, I wasn't going there. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to decide. I want to tell you this, but I, I will tell you, I actually, I have a, a pair of roller skates, outdoor roller skates. We have a greenway behind our house, and I mean four wheels on each skate, not not roller blades. I I will uh, in my exercise routine go hard after put it. on my roller skates and put on my helmet, and at sixty years old, <laughs> roller skate my my greenway uh, for exercise, and that all goes back to my love for roller derby well if we ever get to cross paths again and we're in the same place and we get to hang out i'm going to put on some skates and we're going to go at it i'm gonna get the elbow elbow pads and let's let's have a race hey i am uh, i'm ready to go (laughs) (laughs) okay so here's one for you i just read getting back into some serious stuff and i wish we could spend the whole time talking about your mom that was so much fun to talk about but i just read francis chan's latest book until unity and he hits really hard humility he hits hard how strongly the word of God speaks to unity and we can debate culturally timing, whatever certain scriptures. And obviously there's some things that are a little bit gray theologically and where we want to land on certain tough topics, but he goes, you cannot argue that about unity. 
Speak to that from your heart in general at a Christian university. And I mean, it's fair to say right now, I know the Southern Baptist Convention is going through some very difficult decisions on where they land on some topics right now. And I don't know how familiar you are with Chan's book, but I, I really love what he's saying about the importance of unity. And that's what's going to really make the gospel go forth in a world that sees everybody divided. Yeah, there is something about unity. Jesus, Jesus prays it multiple times in John 17, that, Father, make them one, as you and I are one, that the world may know that you sent me. So that there's something about our unity that God brings us together from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different academic training, different economic levels, speaking different languages, and yet we can, we can walk in the room and know when we are with brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's something really powerful about that. Uh, Jesus prayed for that to happen. Uh, he knew, we know, historically looking at the scriptures, the enemy has always been about division. From Adam turning on Eve to say, this woman you gave me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate, to a brother killing a brother in Genesis 4, we could go on and on. The enemy knows that we won't threaten him as long as we're shooting each other in the, in the back. And so I think we have, to, we have to fight for, from our knees, unity, recognizing that, and I, and I would encourage folks to be aware of Al Mohler's theological triage, three different tiers of theological issues. One, uh, a, a primary tier, that must be divisive because it, because it separates the gospel from the non-gospel. Then other tiers that, that don't have to separate us as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we may choose to worship differently and be in different denominations. Uh, there are just different tiers. I think we need to know those because sometimes we elevate things that are not first tier. Mm. We make them first tier, and it just leads to division. And I, the older I get, the more I think of 4 billion plus people in the world who have little or no exposure to the gospel. Wow. I want us marching forward together. Mm, that preaches. That preaches. So up until recently, one of the big things where you look at your life, Chuck, and say, I need Jesus, it was your mom. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've seen that victory. You've gotten the title. You've gotten the trophy. There's joy. There's abundant life. There's heaven for her. Where, you know, if we're all either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or going into one, where do you look at your life right now and say, man, I need Jesus? Uh, two places. The people for whom I've continued to pray, that I, that I long to come to know Jesus. And I realize that with, with my training, uh, with my degree, my experience, I can't convince them. I want God to do something. The other thing, quite honestly, is where we are in life right now, uh, we're asking the question, Lord, how do we... How do we finish well? How do we maximize whatever time you give us? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't want to. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to presume. I, w I want to be willing to give God a blank check. Mm. Uh, even at sixty, my wife is sixty-four. I want us to be open to whatever the Lord wants. You refer we, to that often. I don't know how many times I've read you reference yeah. blank check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a. It's a. I heard that first from David Platt, then I heard it from my president here at Southeastern, Danny Aiken. Yeah, those are. That's an important concept for me. Mm. If, if I have to tell God what check I will sign, I make myself God. That's, that's backwards. Wow. I appreciate that. And I, I love 
the, the idea of finishing strong, because we, I mean, obviously in the last year or two, we've seen it time and time again uh, in, in the, the body, and it's so desperately needed. We talk often about people getting out of the gate slow and you're behind in a race. Nobody remembers that. If you don't finish strong, and we've seen that in this last year, no matter what, even after you die, it's damaging, and it is way damaging. So I, I appreciate it. It's hard to imagine you not finishing strong, Chuck. So let's close with the church again. Where have you been in the last year discouraged, beat up a little bit by seeing the church respond, engage to uh, to life, to what's going on with or without COVID? And where have you been greatly encouraged by the church? Encouraged? I've been encouraged by the creativity of the church, the adaptability of the church when we uh, when we're forced to do it. Now we we don't we don't default into being adaptable. We were forced to by COVID. But, but many churches figured out how to do it. And, and many churches reached out to all their members in ways that they had not done in years to connect with people, to stay connected with people. I saw the church respond in really good ways. My fear is that once we're past COVID, we'll go back to the routine. I, I don't want us to do that. I think, I think COVID has forced us to consider what really matters what ministries do we have going on that really haven't been effective that that we don't have to have uh, that we can we can do without? Quite honestly, and we've made some hard decisions. I hope we'll continue to evaluate like that in the days to come. I think I think the stress of COVID has much like cross cultural living. You you move overseas and the things that didn't bother you in in the place where everybody speaks your language and you understand the routine, uh, they, they become even more difficult cross-culturally. I think what COVID has done is it's increased our stress loads, even if we don't want to admit it, so that sometimes the, the smaller things now have become bigger things mm. and have become divisive as well. Uh, that's discouraging, but I'm ever mindful that the church is God's church and mm. he's already broken the back of the enemy. The gates of hell will not prevail. That's right. Well, Chuck, thank you. I appreciate it again. I can't say it enough. I think I've messaged you before. I appreciate your investment in me. I certainly would love to cross paths sooner than later. And now I'm ready to cross paths again, just to get some elbow pads on and maybe the right headband and maybe the right athletic looking pants with some shorts over it. And um, we'll go toe to toe on some uh, roller derby. Yeah, you just described what I look like when I roller skate. I cannot believe I'm actually saying this publicly. <laughs> there, there are not many people in my life who know that's what I do. I do it very early in the morning before other human beings are out, but I still, I still do it. So well, let's let's get together sometime. I'll tell you that somebody just recently, and I think it's now public, but uh, Jonathan Pitts, uh, who, who's a bit of a friend who uh, was was married to. Tony Evans' uh, niece and has a crazy story. He kind of revealed here, although this is taped, that uh, he, he was recently engaged. So I felt like we got news and uh, the person who was in here with me at the time got really excited. But I think we've gotten another big juicy um, breaking news thing and we hear and picture stories of you and what you would look like in that gear. So we'll hold on to that for another day. And uh, when, we get, when we get together at some point, we'll make that happen. All right, sounds good, my brother. All right, Chuck. Blessings, thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at GatheringMiamiValley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. 
Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Shine FM Podcast Network.